Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Malott, and welcome to the Essential Antitrust Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about a recent merger litigation success story coming out of the U.S. Earlier this year, Judge Kelly of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia rejected a request by the FTC for a preliminary injunction which would have blocked Evonik's acquisition of Paroxychem. The case was the first FTC loss in a merger control litigation in five years. Freshfields represented Evonik in the case, and today I'm joined by three members of the trial team to hear a little bit more about it. First, we have Eric Marr, who's a partner in our antitrust practice based in D.C. and who's a co-chair of the firm's global antitrust litigation group. Nice to have you, Eric. Thank you very much. We also have Andy Ewalt, who's a partner in our antitrust practice in D.C. Hi, Andy. Thanks for being here. Hi, Jen. Good to be here. And last but not least, we have Laura Onken, who's a senior associate in our antitrust practice in D.C. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the specifics about the case, Eric, maybe for people who aren't as familiar with this merger litigation process in the U.S., can you just explain a little bit about why this ended up in court? Sure. I think one of the defining characteristics of U.S. government enforcement is that unlike almost any other jurisdiction I'm aware of, in order for the enforcement agencies, whether it's the FTC or the Department of Justice's Antitrust Division, in order for those enforcement agencies to block a merger, they must go to court and get action by a a federal district court to block the merger instead of being able to do it themselves, like, for, for example, the European Commission does. There are slight differences between the Department of Justice and FTC in that regard. The Department of Justice uh, goes to federal court to block the merger uh, through a permanent injunction, while the FTC goes to federal court to seek a preliminary injunction of the merger uh, in order to allow it to conduct an administrative proceeding. But as a practical matter, that district court decision in both cases is what over the last 20 years has decided the fate of the merger. Great. Thanks, Eric. That's really helpful background. Laura, can you just tell us a little bit about what this transaction was and who the parties were? Sure. Ivonic, uh, who we represented, is a global specialty chemicals company, and they produce and sell a variety of chemicals, one of which is hydrogen peroxide. Peroxychem, who Ivonic acquired, is a dedicated peroxygen company, which means they produce and sell hydrogen peroxide and some adjacent technologies, which Evonik did not produce in North America. So in North America, the competitive overlap between these parties was really hydrogen peroxide. But not all hydrogen peroxide is the same. It's used for a wide variety of end uses, and Evonik and Peroxychem had very different focuses within hydrogen peroxide. Ivonic was focused on very reliable supply of standard-grade hydrogen peroxide. That's the kind of hydrogen peroxide that might be used to bleach pulp and paper, for example. On the other hand, Peroxychem was heavily focused in specialty hydrogen peroxide products that are used for much higher-end applications. So one example is cleaning of semiconductor wafers, where the hydrogen peroxide has to be incredibly pure. Uh, Another example is hydrogen peroxide for contact lens solution. And so that has to be formulated so it's safe to to put in your eye, for example. That differentiation is really why Ivonik wanted to do this deal in the first place. They wanted to expand their portfolio into these specialty products 
diversify their hydrogen peroxide offering. And that's what caused uh, this, this transaction to, to sign in the first place. Thanks, Laura. So, you know, it sounds like we have really two fairly differentiated businesses here. So, Andy, can you maybe tell us a little bit about why the FTC brought a case and what was their theory of harm? As in most merger cases, really the market definition provides the context for understanding these theories. And the market definition in this case was a little bit complicated because, as Laura was talking about, uh, there are so many different types of hydrogen peroxide products that are highly differentiated. And and really understanding uh, the differences there was key to the case. So the FTC's theory was that there was one relevant product market that included what they called all non-electronics hydrogen peroxide products. And you know, so what does that mean? There are basically uh, four big categories of hydrogen peroxide products that you can group all these different, uh, more narrow product classifications within. And those four groupings are standard grade, specialty grade, pre-electronics grade and electronics grade. And the FTC's theory was that all of the standard grade, specialty grade, and pre-electronics grade belonged in one relevant market, but that that market did not include the electronics grade uh, hydrogen peroxide that, uh, as Laura mentioned, is used for cleaning silicon uh, wafers. So then, so that was the product market aspect. And then the FTC's theory also said that these, this non-electronics hydrogen peroxide was sold in two geographic markets. Uh, one of them was the Pacific Northwest, which included five U.S. states in the northwestern part of the country and four provinces in western Canada. And then the second geographic market was the southern and central United States, which included 35 states ranging from Delaware in the east to California in the west and Minnesota and Michigan in the north to Texas and Alabama in the south. So with that as context, really, for the theory, the FTC had, had kind of two types of claims for why the merger, in their view, uh, would harm competition. Their first theory was a coordinated effects theory about how the merger would increase the risk of express or tacit collusion among hydrogen peroxide suppliers. And then the second theory was unilateral effects theory about how, after the merger, the combined company would be likely to raise prices on its own. Great. Well, you know, obviously we're here today because in the end, Freshfield and Avonic were successful in overcoming the FTC's challenge. So, Eric, can you tell us just maybe a little bit about what your strategy was going into this litigation? I think my strategy for every trial begins and ends with credibility. Having brought these cases as director of litigation for the antitrust division during the end of the Obama administration, I understand the degree of credibility that the government comes into the courtroom with. During the Obama administration, we had won seven trials in a row, and it just happened that before this case, the FTC had won seven trials in a row. And so not only being the government, but also the litigation record that the agencies have established in the federal courts means that they walk into that courtroom with an enormous amount of credibility. And we're arguing to a federal district judge who, in this case, this was his first antitrust case. And so my immediate goal, and I think the most important part of the case from the way I litigate, is to establish our credibility and to take the mantle of credibility from the government and bring it to ourselves. How do we do this? Um, I think it's already been suggested through Laura and Andy's comments. You know, one of the great things about judicial review is it finally forces the FTC, in this case, to 
put its theory on paper in a complaint and give us something to attack. And when they put together this very broad definition of the product market that included the kind of hydrogen peroxide that's sold in little brown bottles in CVSs in the United States and pharmacies in the United States that's used to uh, disinfect skin knees uh, of children who slip on the playground. And also they lumped that together with hydrogen peroxide uh, at the propulsion grade that is used to propel torpedoes and rockets. We were able to really demonstrate to the judge that the FTC had gotten this product wrong, that they had fundamentally misunderstood the product itself and therefore the markets in which it was sold and therefore the competitive effects in that market. And I think by, by being able to capitalize on some of the mistakes that the or misunderstandings that the FTC's team made with respect to the product market and then also with respect to the geographic market, we were able to right from the very beginning of the case, as I said, take that mantle of credibility from the government and, and bring it on to our side of the case. An interesting thing about the approach in this case was the number of avenues of attack that we had on the FTC's case. When I was at the Department of Justice bringing these cases, I was always kind of surprised at defendants' willingness to argue every single argument that could possibly be made in a merger case, from product market to geographic market to effects to entry to efficiencies. And I always felt that by arguing every possible argument, the weak ones and the strong ones, that defendants kind of watered down or diluted the effectiveness of their case. And I remember saying, I'm never going to do that when I'm on the defense side. But here came the first case since I've been out of the government, and we ended up challenging almost every ground. We challenged product market, geographic market, coordinated effects, and unilateral effects, because we really felt that they had made these fundamental errors in or misunderstandings of, of the product, and that just infected the case from top to bottom. So our strategy ended up being to challenge each of the key issues in the case, being product market, geographic market, coordinated effects, and unilateral effects, and challenging them in a way, as I said, to, to undermine the FTC's credibility with the judge and to bring that, to enhance our own credibility. So Eric, I just want to pick up on one of the points you made, which is on defining a relevant market. And it seems like the court agreed with us that the, the FTC didn't define a relevant market in this case, and that was really critical to the decision. So Laura, can you tell us a little bit about what the basis was for that relevant market finding? So traditionally, markets are defined by demand-side considerations. In other words, what products do customers consider to be substitutes for one another. And here it was pretty clear that a customer buying the propulsion grade hydrogen peroxide to fuel a rocket would not consider uh, the brown bottle hydrogen peroxide to be a substitute. And there's countless other examples with the variety of hydrogen peroxide products. So the FTC didn't argue uh, demand side substitutability between the various hydrogen peroxide products. Instead, they argued supply-side substitutability. The FTC argued that all hydrogen peroxide products, except for electronics grade, competitively constrain one another because suppliers can swing production between different products, and therefore those products should be considered in the same market. 
however, the court agreed with us that the FTC did not meet its burden of showing aggregation of all of these products into one market is appropriate. In particular, uh, swinging production between various hydrogen peroxide products was not sufficiently easy, profitable, or universal for hydrogen peroxide suppliers to do in practice for these products to competitively constrain one another. That basically means that shifting production between different grades of hydrogen peroxide was not always easy for suppliers to do. Some grades uh, required a great degree of technical knowledge that not all suppliers possessed. So switching into those different products would be very difficult. In addition, just the way hydrogen peroxide production works, suppliers can't move all of their production into the higher end specialty, higher purity grades. They can only shift a limited portion. And shifting more production than that is quite difficult. So because of that, the court said that the swinging between hydrogen peroxide grades was not sufficiently easy. On profitability, the price points and margins of the various hydrogen peroxide products are very different from one another. So swinging it production in one direction might be profitable, but swinging back would not be. And as a result, those products don't competitively constrain one another in the market. And finally, on nearly universal, there's a number of hydrogen peroxide products that not all suppliers produced or could produce. And because of that, swinging between the various hydrogen peroxide products was not considered nearly universal by the court. And without those three factors, the FTC could not show that these grades, these different hydrogen peroxide products, all belonged in the same product market. Thanks, Laura. I thought the supply side uh, market definition aspects of this case were really, really interesting uh, because it's the first time that a court has applied uh, this easy profitable and nearly universal test from the horizontal merger guidelines in terms of an actual industry. In fact, the FTC's own complaint in this case didn't articulate a supply-side theory of market definition. Um, the FTC seemed to only develop that theory during the expert discovery phase of this case. Uh, and part of the reason for that may be because there are really very, very few cases that talk about these issues. The cases that do talk about it tend to just recognize the possibility of using supply-side considerations to define a market without really providing much useful guidance around how a court could do so in a particular case. There are also actually very few cases that even go beyond the generalities and, and turn on an issue of supply-side market definition. Uh, and those, those cases really haven't come up much in the last 25 years. One of the challenges for us here was to explain to the judge why the facts that Laura uh, recounted about uh, the lack of easy, profitable, and universal substitution or swinging here amounted to a failure to satisfy the standards that were articulated in the merger guidelines. And that was really met through the testimony of our economic expert, Dr. Nicholas Hill. He did a great job of explaining what the concepts and the guidelines mean, why they were important, and that was critical when there was this absence of case law for the judge to really latch on to. Uh, so Dr. Hill explained, for example, that swinging, which is a, a term used in the guidelines, that that involves a supplier shifting its production capacity back and forth from one product to another, just like a playground swing goes back and forth. He also provided a concrete example from the paper industry 
that helped the judge understand when it was appropriate to use supply-side substitution to define a market. Yeah, the way I approached this uh, issue with the judge was to underscore that the FTC was asking this federal judge, Judge Kelly, to be the first judge ever to apply supply-side substitution as a basis for defining a market when the demand-side factors were all in favor of rejecting that market. And they were asking to do that on the basis of cases that were 25 or 30 years old and in contravention of the FTC's own horizontal merger guidelines. So I felt like while it was a complex issue, at the end of the day, we could boil it down to holding the FTC to its own guidelines and not allowing them to reach back into the 90s and 80s to find case law that would support what was just really, at the end of the day, a, a very uh, weak theory underlying their market definition. That's really interesting, guys. And do you think that going forward, this means that in other cases, it's going to be harder for the FTC to either avoid arguments about supply-side substitutability or to make arguments around supply-side substitutability? I think it really just depends on the facts of a particular industry. But what this case shows now is that there, it establishes a precedent for what facts are relevant for that kind of determination, and it sets a pretty high bar for the type of detailed analysis that the FTC is going to have to supply in future cases in order to combine uh, non-substitutable products into a single relevant product market. And another interesting statistic about this case is it was only the second time in 20 years that the FTC didn't appeal a loss at trial. And this kind of supply-side substitutability issue may have factored into that. By pleading a supply-side substitution market and then not being able to come through with the facts to satisfy the test may have been one factor that they considered in uh, deciding not to appeal. I'm sure there were many others, but uh, uh, that could have been a factor that led to that uh, decision. If we move on from the relevant product market, you know, I understood you to be saying at the outset, Eric, that the relevant geographic market was also really critical to the court's decision. What did the court find compelling about our case there? Uh, Again, we took advantage of the opportunities that the FTC gave us. They had previously treated the geographic market for hydrogen peroxide as an all North American market. And we recognized that that was 20 years ago that they made that decision and we weren't trying to hold them to that decision. But it did provide a useful background to show the weakness of the geographic market definitions that they were asserting in this case. The FTC proposed two geographic markets, each of which was really kind of targeted at the two hydrogen peroxide plants that our client Avonik was acquiring. One of those was in the Pacific Northwest, and the FTC cobbled together a geographic market consisting of, I think it was four Canadian provinces and about four U.S. states. And with respect to that market, it was so clear that Paroxychem and Avonik each had plants way up in the Canadian woods in the Pacific Northwest of Canada that clearly competed against each other and and together constituted 90% or more of the sales in Canada. 
while in the U.S. portion of this uh, alleged geographic market, uh, Solvay had a plant in Washington that clearly dominated the U.S. sales in those four states, having more than 90% of those sales. And the FTC really put these two markets together to try to turn a Canadian competition issue into a U.S. competition issue. And we were able to attack that market definition as artificial and what we call in the U.S. gerrymandered, but artificially designed to isolate a geographic area and thereby create a competition issue where if you looked at the proper scope of a geographic market competition, uh, you wouldn't have one. The second market was almost the o- opposite problem, where in the Pacific Northwest, the, the FTC had tried to artificially make smaller the area of competition and combine two discrete, one Canadian and one U.S. markets uh, to create a, a problem. With respect to the other market put forward by the FTC, what they called the South and Central market, the problem with the FTC's definition was different. There, they grouped together 35 states, and as Andy mentioned, the states literally went from California to Florida to Delaware to Michigan. And these 35 states, they somehow called the South Central United States. But, you know, in reality, they were more aptly called the uh, South Central Mid-Atlantic Midwest Pacific market, if you counted all the 35 states. But they put together this kind of collection of 35 states and called it one market. The suggestion by that grouping of 35 states is that the competitive conditions were the same in those 35 states. And we were able to show very clearly, as common sense would suggest, that competitive conditions in California, for example, were different than competitive conditions in Florida, which were different than competitive conditions in Alabama. And we did this by showing the degree to which customers in those various states sourced hydrogen peroxide either from within or outside of the proposed geographic market. And so in states like Delaware or or California, for example, customers there sourced more than 50%, sometimes as much as 70% of their hydrogen peroxide from outside the FTC's proposed geographic market. While in states like Alabama, which is uh, located kind of in the center of a pocket of many of the competitors' plants, 100% of customers in Alabama, uh, of their hydrogen peroxide is sourced from within the FTC's market definition. So we, we were really able, even before we got to the economists, we were really able to show that the FTC's market definitions on the geographic area were designed more to try to create a case and support their case than to reflect the actual conditions of competition. So in this Pacific Northwest region that you mentioned, Eric, it sounds like the parties offered a divestiture that would fix the issue. They did what's called litigating the fix. Laura, can you explain a little bit about what it means to litigate the fix and why it was a successful strategy here? So litigating the fix means that we had signed a divestiture agreement uh, Ivanic had, such that if Ivanic closed its acquisition of ProxyChem, the divestiture would close as well. So our argument was, if you're considering the effects of Ivanic's acquisition of ProxyChem, you need to take the divestiture into account. 
What are the effects after the divestiture also completes? The ultimate question for the court is, will the divestiture replace the merging firm's competitive intensity? And our focus on demonstrating that is why the strategy was successful here. The court considered a number of factors, all of which were considered from you know, the beginning of signing up the divestiture agreement through the, the advocacy to the court and included the certainty of the divestiture. So would the divestiture actually happen if Ivonic's uh, acquisition of Peroxychem did? The experience of the divestiture buyer. So we had a divestiture buyer that was very experienced in an adjacent segment that was a customer of hydrogen peroxide, knew the industry well, and actually one of the buyer's top executives had previously worked in the hydrogen peroxide industry for a number of years. The third factor is the scope of the divestiture. So what Ivonic was divesting was effectively an ongoing business. It was Peroxychem's entire plant in the Pacific Northwest, all associated assets, customers, et cetera. And an ongoing business is what the agencies traditionally look for in a complete divestiture. And finally, the divestiture buyer's independence from the merging parties. The buyer here was not related to Ivonic or Peroxychem, completely independent. Um, and by satisfying all of those factors, we were able to show that the divestiture would replace the merging firm's competitive intensity in the Pacific Northwest. And if the court considered that too, there's no problem there. Just to relate this back to the geographic market definition, as Laura explained, the fix that we had entered into, mainly to address the Canadian competition problem, completely eliminated any possible competition issue in, in the proposed Pacific Northwest market. But we nevertheless attacked that market definition and spent some time at trial attacking that market definition because the FTC's geographic market definition was so artificial and so poorly constructed, and in our view, so clearly designed to take a Canadian competition issue and turn it into a U.S. competition issue that we really wanted to use that as an example for Judge Kelly of why he shouldn't be listening to the FTC and he should be listening to us as the more credible source of information in the case. And as I said at the beginning, credibility was key. And so I think this is one of the places where we were really able to capitalize on a misstep by the FTC, even though we could have just stayed with the point that our divestiture completely eliminates that problem. So, you know, we've talked about the product market, the geographic market, the divestiture. You know, once you got through all that and actually look at the competitive effects of the transaction, in that part of the case, what did the judge find the most compelling about Ivonic's arguments? Judge Kelly really dug into the evidence on both the coordinated effects and the unilateral effects theories, and he looked very, very closely at the documents and the testimony from the witnesses. On the coordinated effects side, the evidence showed that the market was, was highly competitive, that prices were falling, and that the industry wasn't vulnerable to coordination because of the way that it worked. The buyers used blind bidding for procuring hydrogen peroxide. They entered into long and large long-term contracts. Pricing was quite opaque, and the products were very, very different from one another. So all of those features made coordination in this industry very unlikely. Uh, and the merger really wasn't going to change anything about that. Uh, the FTC's really only substantive argument about how the merger would make coordination uh, more likely 
centered around the fact that the merger would reduce the number of suppliers from five to four. But we put on a lot of evidence that showed that the competition was already very vibrant in the Northwest, where there were only three competitors competing. So if in, even in the Southern and Central market, if one competitor was combined, so there were only four left, uh, there was no reason to think that competition would be any less vigorous going forward. So then on turning to the unilateral effects, the FTC had introduced expert economist testimony that tried to quantify how large price increases would be after the merger. And the court really gave that the back of its hand and disregarded that evidence because it wasn't tailored to what the court considered to be the relevant markets. So instead of the economic evidence that the FTC presented, the judge focused mostly on the qualitative evidence. And, and what that showed was that Avonik and Paroxicam weren't each other's closest competitors, either from looking at the product mix that they sold and also the geographies where they competed. It also showed that other firms were going to continue to constrain the, the merged firm after the transaction closed because of this blind bidding process and the all, all or nothing nature of these contracts. Every firm had to put its best foot forward on every bidding opportunity, and that wouldn't change after the merger. The judge did look closely at documents as well, uh, and that was really one of the key things about this case. Typically, the antitrust enforcers in the U.S. won't bring a case unless they have really strong documentary evidence, almost a, requiring a smoking gun, uh, like internal company documents talking about how a merger would allow the combined firm to raise prices. In this case, there just wasn't any evidence like that at all. The judge made an amusing remark about it. He said that because the FTC lacked a smoking gun, it tried to fire a few squirt guns. Uh, and that was, that was a reference to documents that on their face could be read to support the FTC's theory. But Judge Kelly just didn't read them on their face. He looked beyond the documents, listened to the witness testimony, read all the documents in context of the, the record as a whole. And that sort of holistic, really detailed analysis led him to conclude that that the FTC's evidence are these, these few stray squirt gun type documents weren't enough to outweigh the overall record of falling prices and aggressive competition among hydrogen peroxide suppliers. Guys, now that this process is done and, and the transaction is closed, if you tomorrow or next week were to sit down with a company that's looking at a transaction that has the potential uh, for a challenge from, from the FTC down the line, what are the biggest lessons learned from this case or the takeaways that, that you would advise them on going forward? Why don't I start? I think there's quite a few of them. The first and maybe the most important is that companies should not back down. As I said in the beginning, judicial review is an extraordinary gift. It's a unique feature of our system in the United States, and the parties should be willing to use it when appropriate. You know, antitrust, I think, in the last five years has become more politicized than it has ever been before in the United States. And the FTC, and as well as the DOJ, but the FTC in particular is under an immense amount of pressure to bring cases. In fact, I think they've brought three additional merger challenges just since we won this case at the end of January. And so parties are going to be facing more challenges as the agencies are under more political pressure to bring more cases, and they've got to be willing to stand up to the agencies when the facts allow. And that brings me to the second, the second point, which is facts still matter in antitrust. 
And there can be a lot of theories, supply side substitution and swinging sounds like an interesting kind of antitrust theory. But at the end of the day, the facts are necessary to support that theory. And they weren't here with respect to either the uh, of the market definitions or of the uh, theories of competitive harm. And those facts are a place where the parties have particular advantage because we have the, the employees, uh, the business people who work in these markets and it can really explain them credibly to the court. And, and then the final point is credibility is king. And I think that's where uh, we were able from the very beginning of the case to kind of wrestle away from the FTC the mantle of credibility that the government comes in with and to convince the judge that he ought to be listening to our witnesses about how this industry really works rather than to the FTC's lawyers. So building on, on that point about credibility, one key takeaway that I had is that the economic evidence has to be tightly integrated with all the other types of evidence in the case in order to develop a coherent and credible narrative uh, that the judge can accept and find persuasive. Sometimes litigants, they fall into the trap of using an economist to just put up a lot of equations and numbers that, that may be difficult for a generalist judge to really grapple with. But uh, what Dr. Hill did for us was that he was able to successfully explain concepts in a credible way that connected with the judge. Uh, and help the judge fill the gap between the absence of case law and the FTC's theory in this case. And he did that in a way that the FTC's own economist wasn't able to do. Now, Dr. Hill also did some calculations, and those were important to neutralize the testimony of the FTC's economist. So Dr. Hill talked about how the FTC's economist incorporated unfounded assumptions into his model and how his predictions weren't consistent with the real world evidence of competition and historic past bidding in the hydrogen peroxide industry. Some of that got pretty technical. The judge uh, really didn't engage with either expert on in the techni technical aspects of the economics. But what Dr. Hill's testimony did do is it succeeded in raising enough questions in the judge's mind that he could feel comfortable putting to the side uh, the predictions from the FTC's economist. Yeah, I'll just add there that the big theme from the economic evidence to me is Dr. Hill always talked about looking at the data and asking the data the economic questions. While I found the FTC's expert, instead of asking the data, would create assumptions to get to his responses. And I think Andy and Dr. Hill did a really good job of uh, focusing the court on what the industry data told us uh, in terms of, of the economic effects of the transaction rather than trying to assume a model to uh, come up with those those uh, effects. And just to build on that focus on the facts, I think the general strategy of focusing on the market realities, the nuance, the actual complexities and the facts throughout the process, both through the initial advocacy to the FTC all the way through the litigation was key to ultimate success. The FTC repeatedly cited the party's advocacy early in the process to the court and the fact that that advocacy was consistent with what we were telling the court in the litigation was very important. And something that was very helpful in achieving that consistency in advocacy was utilizing the same team from the deal process through the litigation. The litigation team was brought on quite early in the advocacy. 
members of the deal team, um, including myself, stayed on the matter through the, the litigation. And we had the same consistency across our European and US teams doing, doing the merger control process for this transaction. Our ability to make sure we were aligned across jurisdictions throughout the full advocacy process was really important for consistency, maintaining credibility, um, speaking to Eric's point a little earlier. And I think that coordination goes beyond just our European and, and U.S. teams to our, uh, our Canadian partners um, at McCarthy's. We were able to coordinate with a Canadian council with whom we have deep and long-term relationships and make sure that the Canadian case before the Competition Bureau there was well-coordinated with the U.S. case and that even allowed us to to uh, inform Judge Kelly before he ruled that the Canadian Competition Bureau had approved our divestiture in the Pacific Northwest. I imagine that gave the judge uh, comfort that his decision that there wasn't a competition issue there after our divestiture was the right one. And maybe just to wrap up, building on Laura's statements about the administrative review team staying involved in the case when it, to, when it went to litigation and the litigators, uh, Andy and myself, getting involved in the case early in the review rather than waiting until the complaint was filed. I think that all speaks to the need of companies to prepare for litigation and to have litigation in mind very early in the process. That includes in the deal documents, making sure that whatever timeline is created for the transaction, that there's enough time to litigate at the end. It means getting your litigators involved in the administrative review, at least at the investigational hearing or deposition stage, if not sooner. Because whether it actually ends up in litigation or whether just to make clear to the agency that if they think they're going to interfere with this transaction, they're going to have to fight us to do it, is really important to the overall dynamics and only more important in, in this area of increased antitrust enforcement. Well, it looks like we are out of time, but Eric, Andy, Laura, thank you very much for joining us today. And, and congratulations again to you and the team and Avonik on such an exciting victory. Thanks, Jen. Pleasure Thanks to be here. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jen. I'd also like to thank our listeners for joining us, and we'll see you next time with more Essential Antitrust.